You're listening to On The Verge, a podcast about solving the security risks of the 21st century, produced by the Council on Strategic Risks. Tune in for expert interviews about some of today's most pressing existential problems, including climate change, global pandemics, bioweapons, and nuclear proliferation. We'll discuss some of the major challenges and outline potential solutions for preventing worst-case scenarios. At the Council on Strategic Risks, we believe that we are on the verge of a better tomorrow. Hi everyone, my name is Andrea Rosanico. I am the Deputy to the CEO and Deputy Director of the Converging Risks Lab at the Council on Strategic Risks. In today's episode, you'll hear a discussion on how deforestation, stability, migration, and climate change are intersecting in Central America. This is part of CSR's work analyzing how climate change and migration trends are intersecting around the world. Today, I'll be speaking with Andrew Davis, Director of the Forest and Territorial Governance Program at PRISMA, a regional center for dialogue and research on development and environment founded in 1992 with a mission to generate and mobilize knowledge to strengthen the livelihoods and territorial governance processes led by rural communities and indigenous peoples in Mesoamerica, one of the most unequal and insecure regions of the world. PRISMA is headquartered in El Salvador. Andrew, welcome to The Verge. Thank you so much, Andrea. Pleasure to be here. Great. Let's just dive in. To begin with, especially for our listeners who may not be as well-versed in this nexus, what is narco-deforestation and how does it intersect with climate change and migration issues in Central America? Sure. Narco-deforestation is large-scale deforestation that is driven by narco-trafficking. Narco-traffickers do this to establish African palm plantations, extensive cattle ranching, among others, in order to establish territorial control for transit of drugs. They also do it to establish their authority in territory, and it's also a form of money laundering, especially through African palm and cattle ranching, because these are very loosely regulated sectors. So this is something that we as PRISMA began to see in our work with the Mesoamerican Alliance of Peoples and Forests, who are based in the major forested regions of Mexico and Central America. So when we talk about narco-deforestation, we're largely talking about Central America. And this is something that we saw in the Paten, in Altavera Paz, in Izabal, in Guatemala, in the Mosquitia, in Olancho, and in other areas in Honduras. Also, there are different dynamics through the region, but we were working through all these territories, including the Caribbean coast of Nicaragua, Talamanca, and in Costa Costa Rica and the Darien. And we saw different ways that these dynamics began to express themselves, especially beginning in the mid-2000s. And in 2014 was when Kendra McSweeney and a very committed, very smart group of researchers kind of blew the door open on the topic when they published in, in Science Magazine. Great, thank you. And through that work over these past several years, what are the key analytical gaps and challenges in understanding these dynamics? In terms of narco-deforestation itself, I think that is actually very well understood. The group led by, by Kendra McSweeney, Eric Nielsen, and others have done a wonderful job of documenting in very high resolution where these dynamics are taking place, what is driving them, combining ethnographic work with satellite monitoring and showing exactly what is happening and where. So I don't think there's a, a great deal that is not understood in terms of narco-deforestation itself. 
Though I would say that there is a general pattern of expansion, which is known as the cockroach effect. You know, when, when interdiction comes into a certain place, it has the effect of dispersing the agents of narco-trafficking. And that has the general effect of making all of these dynamics much more widespread. And so you see a southward trend of these dynamics. And it was just this year that an article was published about narco-deforestation in the Darien in Panama, whereas previously we hadn't seen this sort of dynamic in, in Panama it had been largely focused in, in Guatemala and Honduras. So that's what I would say about narco-deforestation um, in the first instance. In the second instance, I would say that I think that it's generally poorly understood the role of forest communities and indigenous peoples and the importance of their rights and their control over territory. We know from a number of examples that where rights are strong and actually implemented and where social organization is strong, rural territories are much less vulnerable to these dynamics. But I think that's fairly well understood, but still within a very small community. And the third thing I would say is where I do think there are major analytical gaps, this relates to the broader impact of criminal governance in Central America. So if you think about narco-deforestation, narco-deforestation is, is very easy to detect in one way because at the same time that all of this was happening, there was all sorts of investment going into the reducing emissions from deforestation and degradation programs. So there's all sorts of investment in, in terms of monitoring technology and analysis of what is happening. And so when you see large-scale socio-environmental changes in these regions, they're actually very easy to detect. You can see them from space. I think what we have been talking about recently in Prisma is that it is very likely that there are equally monumental changes going on in many other territories in Central America or that are much more difficult to detect in the same way that you detect narco deforestation. And what I mean by that is narco deforestation and, and narco trafficking in general is very often framed as a, a problem which is separate from the rest of society that narco traffickers come through they traffic and they do their they do their business and they move on and they're not really linked to the rest of society and we know in in the cases that have been very well documented by the narco trafficking and the narco deforestation group we know that that's not the case that they have very deep linkages with the state and with other elite actors. They have territorial expressions and they are forming alliances that will last a very long time. And we think you see that in, in narco deforestation, but I, I think it's also fair to say that you also see it in, in many other places outside of just these forest frontier regions. Speaking on deforestation and what you were just highlighting, you know, there's this umbrella of ecological degradation, particularly in, in Central America. Deforestation falls under that. Climate change falls under that. You know, monumental changes in, in around the world, particularly in Central America, including when it comes to climactic impacts like natural disasters and extreme heat and drought and flooding and other weather events that are intersecting with agriculture and just day-to-day -day livelihoods in, in the region. Tying these themes together, so let's say migration and deforestation, and these issues with, let's say, social fragility and how the social fabric is changing and deforestation. How does this all tie together? How does this nexus, it's, it's a complex question, but how does this nexus unfold in this region? Yes, yes, I think that's a great question. Well, absolutely. I mean, when we think about what the region needs 
for adaptation, I would say two things are really important. The first is land use and land use management. People need access to food, access to water. They need landscapes that are resilient to the droughts and extreme events that are occurring. The second thing that we need is social cohesion and social organization and the, and the capacity for societies to respond to these shocks. And I think the way that it is, is very worrisome that, that all this is, is unfolding in Central America is that the current land use institutions are absolutely antithetical to social cohesion and sustainable land use. And a lot of it has to do with the particular linkages between criminal organization, between elite groups and the state apparatus. And just to kind of delve into this point a little bit more, I think there is a very strong tendency to frame the governance problems in Central America only in the sense of what the state should be. There are lots of programs that are very useful and that are important that focus only on strengthening the state, strengthening the military, strengthening security. And, and those are very important things, but where it gets problematic is when we lose all bearings of what the actual political economic arrangements in the society are. And we think the most consequential relationships, especially in, in countries like Guatemala and Honduras, are precisely these networks that are linked between criminal governance and elites and the state. So you essentially have small groups of private power that are very effectively distorting public institutions for, for their own private gain. And land use and extractive land use is one of the main ways that these networks enrich themselves. There are a number of different authors that have delved into this in, in more detail. One of them is actually Kaya Eno Lemon. He wrote an article on complex adaptive systems in, in Honduras. And kind of in the vein of not only focusing on what we think the state and society should be, but actually focusing on what is, he analyzed Honduras as a complex adaptive system. And the way he conceived of that was that th this system was a collection of semi-autonomous agents operating internally, both state and non-state actors, and that the relationship between these semi-autonomous agents was actually largely antagonistic. And it's really key to understand that when, you, when, when we think about what the structures of power actually are in these countries. Another person who, who looked at this was Sarah Chase, who wrote a book called uh, When Corruption is the Operating System in Honduras. And she characterized, I, you know, I, th I think she really kind of hit the nail on the head when she said the most important thing we should be looking at is these cross-cutting networks between these three domains, right? Criminal organization, state, and, and elites. And she called them kleptocratic networks. And so what you see as a systematic pattern is essentially large-scale theft. And it's theft through land grabbing, it's theft through pillaging of state institutions. And this makes sense when you're in an overall institutional environment where you have competing factions within the same society that are working to enrich themselves and compete with each other. And violence is increasingly a method of resolution of disputes, even though it's not often between elite groups, but where also the institutions of state are not the main mediating institutions of conflicts between these organizations. And so in that context, the extractive industries that we see that are absolutely undermining the future for adaptation in Central America makes sense from that logic. The other troubling pattern is a lot of times in order to ensure their extractive projects, they have to displace communities or disintegrate the, the social organizations that are in territory to decrease their resistance to these projects. And so it's really important that we understand that these projects don't have a net effect of economic growth. They're not helping us the prosperity of the society. We're really undermining what is most necessary for adaptation in, in the region.
land grabbing, extractive industries, this blurring essentially of legitimate and illegitimate actors in the region, some of the adaptation measures that you mentioned that are at the root not entirely helpful for the people or the communities, combining and again, this nexus, this this storm of combining with climate challenges and just general fragility. What is needed to make sure policy and development and interventions succeed in the long term? Because I think that that's the first step at trying to offer a local perspective. And obviously, these are dynamics that I believe, quite frankly, aren't discussed enough. So in your view, what's kind of needed to ensure that? Sure. In the first instance, in terms of policy, I think the most important thing that can happen right now in Central America is security for the people that are working for a more just and transparent society and that are really on the front lines of this. And those are journalists and community leaders and civil society activists. They are the ones who are really struggling against, you know, if we want to call it the kleptocratic networks, like Sarah Chase says that they're the ones who are struggling against these networks because a lot of times the, the most important decisions in society are increasingly in the dark. And that's why you have journalists that are that are threatened and you have communities who are defending their lands and that's why these communities are threatened so i think the most important thing uh, that can be done immediately is to ensure the security of those people second in terms of the international community and international support i think it's really important for international development support to really understand the local context in which they are supporting their projects i think in general there is an underappreciation for these dynamics and the ways in which development finance can be captured towards local ends that are that are not aligned with adaptation. And so I really think that it's very important for all of those efforts to really understand locally what is happening and not just trust the implementers that they're doing a good job. There actually has to be verification. Uh, a lot of this has to do with the, the way that development is increasingly blended with private finance. And I think in the same way, it's really important, you know, the, the more and more that you combine development cooperation with private fi finance, a lot of times the the standards and the, the frameworks for due diligence and the actual objectives of those projects are, are often watered down. So it's really important for everyone who is looking to help these societies move to a better place, really understand that local context, verify what they're doing, support local, local communities, like I said, and I think just over the long term, be substantively engaged in, in locally how these projects and initiatives play out. Certainly points that need to be incorporated over the long term. Hopefully these sorts of conversations and focus in terms of policy as well can support local efforts and communities. And the focus on communities is more prioritized than perhaps it has been in the past. Thank you so much, Andrew, for speaking with me today. Absolutely, of course. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to On The Verge. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to leave us a review. For more information on the work of the Council on Strategic Risks, please visit us at councilonstrategicrisks.org, or you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn.